right, good morning. It's good to see you guys. If we haven't met yet, I'm Jeff and would love to meet you if you get a chance um, as I organize the papers here. I'm going to start with a little story I read this week as I was studying the text. I think it'll get us heading in the right direction. A priest working in the villages outside Cambridge, England, reports that when sheep are taken off to be killed, they know instinctively that the slaughterhouse is a bad place. They can smell or sense something which warns of danger. The truck carrying them will stop. The gangplank will be put down, but they will refuse to move. The slaughterhouse operators have devised a way of getting around the problem. They keep a sheep on the premises who is used to the place and doesn't mind it anymore. They take it up the plank onto the truck and then it walks down again quite happily. And the other sheep, seeing one of their own leading the way, will follow. The slaughterhouse workers call this sheep Judas. Go. So we're going to talk about, we're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning. We're in a series called The Table, so we've been taking a fair amount of time to look at a bunch of the New Testament passages to try to grow our understanding of what is happening when we celebrate communion together, or maybe you grew up in a tradition that called it the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Um, but what is going on, <laughs> excuse me, with this meal We started the series talking about how there's a sacred mystery. We confess more than we can explain, but somehow Jesus is uniquely present in the bread and in the cup. Somehow Jesus is uniquely present. The risen Christ is here in a unique way at his table. In the last few weeks, we've been talking a little bit more about one of the the intended consequences of this meal. Why did Jesus give us this meal and tell us as his church to keep practicing it, to keep doing this. And what we've been saying, and we'll kind of continue, maybe wrap up a bit this part of the series, but we've been talking about unity, that, that gathering at the table is an event that creates unity, and that matters to Jesus. Now, as I was approaching our text, John chapter 13 gets us into John's account of the Last Supper, and the Last Supper really is then what? we kind of imitate as we do the Lord's Supper, moving on. Uh, John, John wrote his gospel last. It was written later. He had a little more time to theologically reflect. And so if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they feel very similar. John feels very different, <laughs> but it's intended. He's doing something a little different as he's telling the same story, just kind of a more poetic and artistic lens, if you will. But I, I, I approached John chapter 13 with two, well, I always bring a, I bring a bunch of questions to the text. I like to ask questions. But the two that I kind of landed on for the sake of this morning were, one, what do you do with Judas at the table? What do you do with Judas? And actually, I think it's going to be relatively straightforward because we're going to see what Jesus did with Judas. <laughs> uh, it might not be surprising, but it will be challenging. What do you do with Judas at the table? Someone who is scheming to betray you. What do you do with someone like that? But the question then that we'll spend a little bit more time on, because I think we we might just need to meditate on what Jesus does, but then we need to think a little bit more about this. How do we make sure that you and I aren't Judas at the table? 
Uh, we'll get into this at the end of the sermon uh, this morning, but one of the things we've been talking about the last two weeks is that we are imp- approaching 2024, which, uh, spoiler alert, it's an election year in our country. And I don't know if you were around for 2020, but um, that was rough. And we've been talking about this. You are going to be pressured to be divisive in just a few months, if it hasn't already started. And what we're trying to do is to be something different when we gather in the name of Jesus. And we're going to fight for unity (laughs) Uh, in the Jesus way. But we are going to value this and we're going to remind one another, hey, not everyone sees it exactly like you do. Let's listen to one another. Let's learn how to be like Jesus and think like Jesus and see like Jesus together because we all have blind spots and we all have things that we can learn. So what we'll hone in on eventually is how do we make sure that you and I aren't Judas at the table? Just creating disunity when we've seen how important unity is to Jesus. So let's begin in John chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Before the Passover celebration... The pastor in me wants to say so much. Passover is a big deal in John, but that's not for this morning. (laughs) Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. Even that phrase might sound striking to you. What's going on between Jesus and the Father? What is this unique relationship? We're going to see even more in just a verse or so. And here's what I want to get. I'm getting excited about. We're going to do two more weeks after today on the table and then Thanksgiving. And then after Thanksgiving, we're going to start a new series, kind of our Advent series and we're going to lean into this kind of thing, this, this relationship. It'll be a great, you know, we're preparing our hearts for the coming of King Jesus. We're going to lean into this relationship with the Father in, the, in our next series. And John is going to sum up, I, I think it's pretty incredible how he chooses to do this. John is going to sum up the ministry of Jesus. He sums it up this way. Jesus had loved his disciples during his ministry. So there's lots of ways you and I might sum up the ministry of Jesus. John just sums it up as, well, he was loving his disciples. <laughs> what was Jesus? Well, he's loving his disciples. Bring in the kingdom. And he says, and now he loved them to the very end. Your translation, if it's a different translation, may say he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them completely. We, we could say there was nothing that love could do for them that Jesus did not now do. He exemplified perfect love. And it's interesting, if I, if I got this right, the first 12 chapters of John, the word love, some of you know this, some of you have a little bit of familiar, familiarity with Koine Greek, but the word is agape, shows up six times in the first 12 chapters of John. And in these next five chapters, which cover, which is a pretty big chunk of John, covers this upper room discourse, the Last Supper. <laughs> in these next five chapters, we go from six occurrences in the first 12 chapters to 31 occurrences of love in the next five chapters. This just, just, just sets up a framework for you of what Jesus is doing here in this meal. He loves them to the very end. It was time for the supper, this Last Supper. And it says, the devil had already prompted Judas, here's our friend Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to to, to betray Jesus. We've talked a little bit about the devil, and the the Bible is the devil, the Satan. That's just a translation of the accuser, the slanderer, the adversary. 
And we've talked about that. We've leaned into this before, but I, the, the devil's up to, I mean, evil's up to a lot in our world. But one of the, pri- I think one of the primary ways that the devil tries to get into our lives is he comes in the form of a good idea. I mean, here the devil is prompting, is, is planting this quote-unquote good idea to betray Jesus. We'll talk about why that is as we get further into the story. But that's what's happening. It's just, it, the devil comes as a good idea. It's not really a good idea, but we think it's a good idea. All right, uh, verse 3. Jesus knew, here's this language again in our next series we'll get here, knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. And that he had come from God and would return to God. So I want you to picture this. So he got up from the table. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And he poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. It's a very servant-oriented thing. In fact, one uh, historian says this, most foot washing in the ancient world was a menial task. It involved washing off not just dust and mud, but also the remains of human excrement because it was tipped out of houses into the streets. And also animal waste, which was left on country roads and town streets. The task of doing this as an act of hospitality to honor guests was therefore normally assigned to slaves or servants of low status. So much so that foot washing at this time was virtually synonymous with slavery. So this is what makes the fourth gospel's, John's gospel's account so extraordinary. There is no parallel in extant ancient literature for a person of superior status voluntarily washing the feet of someone of inferior status. It's the only place you'll see this. Jesus' act, therefore, represents an assault on the usual notions of social hierarchy, which, if you've been with us, that's what we've been talking about the last two weeks. It's a subversion of the normal categories of honor and shame. And in John's brilliant theological explanation here as he tells the story, it's not just an honored teacher who is performing a shameful act, but a divine figure with sovereignty over the cosmos who is taking on the role of a slave. So you think about that piece, but then there's also just, I I mean, if you try to put yourself, which I always recommend, try to put yourself in the story. I don't know if you've ever had any, some people come from traditions where they practice this, you know, you wash. I've I've done this one time where I washed, someone washed my feet and then I washed someone else's feet. And it's very intimate, right? It's really personal. Think about how many people like their skin touches the skin on your feet. And the time I did it, it was still a little awkward. I mean, you're like down, you're looking up at people, you're like washing their feet. And they took off their shoes and socks, so their feet weren't even that gross. I mean, in Jesus' day, when you were doing this, you were getting the junk off. And, and you think about that. You, you, I mean, this might even make some of you squirm in your seat because you're ticklish. You got to like get between the toes. Like, imagine somebody else sticking their fingers between your toes. Oh, it's like, and that's what Jesus was doing for each of his disciples. We'll keep going. Verse 6. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you, are you really going to wash my feet? 
Jesus replied, you, I think this is just repeat between Jesus and Peter. Peter, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. But Jesus, you don't understand now, but someday you will. Just over and over again in Peter's life, right? Well, in this instance, Peter says, no, you will never, ever wash my feet. And so Jesus, I think, calmly replies, well, unless I wash you, you won't belong not a part of what I'm doing in this world. And then Peter, ever the ultimate pendulum swing, right? Well, then wash my hands and head as well, not just my feet, right? And Jesus replies, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash. I'll say a little bit about what I think he's saying here. You don't need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And we'll even come back to this phrase when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. Jesus says, you disciples are clean. You're clean. You're already clean. He says, but not all of you, right? Because we're going to talk about Judas. For Jesus knew who would betray him. And that's what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. Well, let me just say a few things about this verse. And then these verses will keep going. But as it pertains in particular to the Lord's Supper, we, in our tradition, we celebrate two kinds of things that we, we call them, you can call them ordinances or sacraments, but they're, they're, they're sacred mysteries that Jesus has instructed us to continue doing as the church. The first is baptism, which I think is part of what he's saying. You're, if you've been baptized, if you have, you know, we talk about sometimes we have people share a testimony. I, li- I like to ask people, when did, when did you meet Jesus? And we believe that the moment that you really meet Jesus and in, in your heart and in your head and your soul, you can confess him as Savior and Lord. You believe what he did on the cross for you is sufficient for the forgiveness of your sins. In that moment, you are washed clean. I think that's what Jesus is saying. The Holy Spirit comes upon you. You are adopted into this family and you're washed clean. It's a one-time thing. We baptize people one time. But communion is something we continue to practice over and over again. Every time we gather for communion, Jesus is washing our feet. Maybe like Peter, you say, but I'm a mess. Do you all, well, no, we don't need to do all of you again. You're already in the family, but we do need, but you have gotten dirty. (laughs) There's some dust in those crevices, right? We got to clean you out a little bit, but just, and you just, and you think about it, you just get a little wafer and a little bit of juice, right? It's not very much, but it's sufficient for your cleanliness. That's, I think, some of what's being communicated here. Keep going. After washing their feet, verse 12 Jesus put on his robe again and he sat down and he said, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right because that's what I am. And since I, your teacher and your Lord, have washed your feet, listen to this, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. I have given you a pattern. Study this pattern and replicate it imitate it. Do this. He says, do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. And now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. 
Again, we are a church that deeply believes that there is abundant life available for you today. And learning to live the Jesus way of love will open up a depth of life that you never imagined possible. I think about how many people in this world are longing to find this sacred place where your life is filled with peace and purpose. A whole lot of people know a little bit of peace but don't know anything about purpose. A whole lot of people know a lot about purpose and don't know anything about peace. I'm telling you, in Jesus, there's this place where you learn how to be at peace with life and still live with great purpose. And love is at the center of all of it. Jesus is saying you will be blessed if you can learn and follow this pattern. Uh, those who are, one, one author said this, reflecting on these verses, those who are Christ-like are known by the ease and spontaneity with which they do the little annoying messy things, the things which in the ancient world the slave would do, the things which in our world we always secretly hope someone else will do it so we don't have to, so we don't have to demean ourselves or so we don't have to waste our time. All those things that you're hoping someone else does, um, I'll do this because my son was at first service. (laughs) All those things you're hoping your parents do for you, maybe you could do it for them. Or parents, all those things you're hoping your kids would do for you, maybe you do it for them, right? These things that, you know, no one wants to do it. But, But Jesus said, but I take the role of a slave. So you take the role of a slave. And, and, and ironically, surprisingly, as you do it, you will start to learn something about what real life and real love really is. All right, let's jump to verse 21. Now Jesus was deeply troubled, which we could say a whole lot about that. Even Jesus got deeply troubled. This was hard stuff. And he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Back to Judas. The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. It wasn't obvious that Judas was going to be the traitor. They had no idea. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Just, I'll just make a comment here. The disciple Jesus loved is likely John, the author of this gospel. And I could do a whole sermon on this, but we talked a little bit about identity last week. It's easy to think, I'm the guy who does this or the girl who does that or whatever. Man, if you can learn that your core identity is that you are the one whom Jesus loves, you're going to find a lot of freedom in your life. It's a great place to be. John understood it. He sees himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. He's sitting by Jesus at the table, and Simon Peter motioned, saying, hey, who's he talking about? So, so this disciple asked Jesus, who is it? And Jesus responds just to him, it is the one to whom I give the bread that I dip in the bowl. And Jesus, this is important, he dips the bread in the bowl. He gives it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And when Judas had eaten the bread, we'll come back and talk about what is happening here. Satan entered into him. And I want you to notice how Jesus responds to this moment. Jesus simply says, hurry and do what you're going to do. In other words, there's no manipulating There's no driving an agenda or scheming from Jesus. It's going to be important. Jesus says, do what you need to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant when he said that. 
Uh, since Judas was their treasurer, some thought he was telling him to go and pay for food or maybe give money to the poor. So Judas left at once. And in a very, I think, intentional way, as Judas is going to partner with the forces of darkness in our world, John says, and he leaves, and it's night. It's night. So I think we get an answer to my first question. It's pretty straightforward. What do you do with Judas at the table? Well, to me, it doesn't seem like Jesus treats Judas any different than he treats the others. He washes his feet. And he even maybe goes a step farther by offering, by, by offering him the bread. I mean, it's, it's this act of friendship. It's one more opportunity for Judas to say yes to the light and no to the darkness. But Judas's mind is made up and Jesus says, okay, go do what you need to do. But we see pretty clearly what Jesus does to Judas at the table. But after Judas leaves, Jesus then moves on to prepare the disciples for what's about to happen. And really, you can read John 13 through 17. Most of it is Jesus saying, all right, things are coming and I'm going to be leaving you. And so you need to be ready. He's preparing them. He, he tells them about the hard things that are coming their way. Not every single specific detail. I always worry about anybody who tells you everything that's exactly going to happen. <laughs> But he tells them enough to know that it's going to be hard. But the, but the Spirit of God is coming and they'll be able to get through it. So I want to turn our attention to my second question this morning. How do we make sure that you and I are not Judas at the table? I mean, the disciples didn't know. It could have been any of them. What do you mean? What do you mean? One of, we don't know which one's going to betray you. Not I. Not I. <laughs> How do we make sure that we're not the one who's bringing all of this to the table of the Lord. And to get there, I want to return to some language I've used before. This comes back into my mind frequently, and I thought I would just reintroduce it. But in the past, one or two times, I think, we've talked about how we can break good or break bad. In this story, Judas breaks bad. It's quite possible that the foot washing is what puts him over the top. We'll get there in a second. But what we can say is that evil has distorted his vision of things. John says he's filled with the Satan. What I would say is he's emptied of everything that is truly his. Judas in this moment, as he's filled with the accuser, the Satan, he's emptied of his humanity. He's completely taken over by a cause. He's complete, his imagination is filled with an idea and an agenda. And there's no personhood left. There's no humanity left. If you were with us a few series ago in our series on Babylon, we would say Judas has become a beast. He's beastly. Everything about him that makes him human is gone because he's overwhelmed by this agenda. The Satan has entered him. There is a breaking that is good, we'll talk about with Jesus, and there is a breaking that is bad. There is a kind of response to pressure that is not good where we turn from light to darkness. And it can happen to anyone. The disciples were surprised to see that Judas 
had turned to the darkness. Let me say it this way. Pain, pressure, and disappointment are the sources of inevitable breaking in our lives. You cannot avoid it and you cannot prevent it. I know you don't like hearing this, but it's true. You will experience pain. You will be under pressure. You will suffer disappointment. And not everything will go your way. And not everything will end the way you hope. And how you respond to this pain, pressure, and disappointment determines whether you break good or break bad. There will be pressure, and the pressure will cause cracks. (laughs) What is going to fill those cracks? When you're betrayed, or you're rejected, or you're disappointed, do you become a tornado of destruction and pain to everyone around you, like Judas? Or, like Jesus, do you break good? Jesus broke under the pressure in a way where he saves, (laughs) where he he heals, he restores. Jesus' broken body brings healing to us. (laughs) So how do you break good or bad? What's the difference? Well, the difference is how we respond to the pain, the pressure, and the disappointment that breaks us. Judas is very disappointed with Jesus. We'll talk about why in a second. But he wants to control things. He has an agenda. You and I often want to control things. And in the process, right, if the core of this whole thing is learning how to love as Jesus has loved, and what do we say when we talk about this? With Jesus, you are never a means to an end. You are always an end in yourself. But when you break bad... When you get overwhelmed, when you lose your humanity and you become beastly, the people around you become a means to your end. That's when you're beastly. It is impossible to love your neighbor as yourself when your neighbor is a means to be used for your own (laughs) self-glorification. This breaking bad. When we feel the pressure, when we want to control things, we want to use people. We want to make things turn out the way we want them to turn out. Judas wants to control Jesus and his agenda, so he tries to manipulate Jesus into violence. Judas does not take the money and run. He's at the betrayal to manipulate Jesus to respond by launching a violent revolution against the Romans. He breaks bad because he wants to respond to pressure with being able to control everything around him according to his own agenda. Now, again, this is a bit of speculation. We don't know exactly what's going on in Judas's mind, but I really do believe that Judas had been following Jesus and he was really excited. And here's the Messiah who's going to liberate us from Roman oppression. And he's the next Alexander the Great. And he's the next Julius Caesar. And he's going to bring about a new Babylon in the same way that every Babylon before it has come and gone. But Jesus keeps saying all these things about loving your enemy and he's lifting up the poor and the oppressed and Judas is getting a little worried and then all of a sudden he's washing feet and he's supposed to be the the next king and he's acting like a slave and it's just too much for Judas. And I think in Judas's mind, he's like, I'm going to force his hand. I'm not totally done with Jesus. If we trap him in a corner, we'll get him in the garden. (laughs) 
We trap him in the corner. He'll have to fight the way Julius fight, Caesar fought. He'll have to fight like Alexander the Great. He'll have to bring about a kingdom the way every other Messiah has before him. And we'll finally see this thing happen. But that's just not who Jesus, that's not how Jesus works. It's so disorienting for Judas to see a kingdom that comes by way of love and mercy and forgiveness. He broke bad. And when we break bad, everything spins out of control. We try to control our our future, but we lose control. And then there are all kinds of unintended consequences. Judas has a a scheme to control Jesus. He has a plot. He's going to force Jesus to be the kind of Messiah he thinks Jesus should be. (laughs) But it all spins out of control. And it actually ends just tragically with Judas taking his own life. There is a deeply ingrained and almost instinctual instinct for you and I to take control of things in our lives and use people. And it is this source of temptation where we break bad. We feel we must be in control no matter the cost. And part of, I think, what even John is saying around all this talk about the Satan and the devil, when you and I break bad for the sake of control, we unleash demonic and satanic forces of destruction. In other words, all hell breaks loose. Well, what about breaking good? Jesus breaks good. He breaks good and he brings salvation. This is my body broken for you. This is good. So how do we break good? Well, when we're under pressure... When we're suffering disappointment, when we're feeling the pain, what do we do if we can't take control and make it turn out the way we want? What's the alternative way to live? What's the truly radical alternative that Jesus displays in this text, both in this chapter and then as John's gospel unfolds to the end? (laughs) And one of the things I heard years ago and I come back to quite frequently is that the The Christian faith is nothing more than simple truths taken deeper. (laughs) And so I'm going to give you a real simple truth, but I'm going to tell you if you're going to apply this and learn to break good, you're going to realize you got to take this a lot deeper. But what Jesus does is he trusts that the Father is in control. He is not going to scheme. He is not going to manipulate. He is not going to force his agenda. He is going to trust the will of the Father. He is going to trust that God is good, even when it doesn't look that way or feel that way. He is going to trust in the the midst of scarcity. I mean, his life is on the line. He is going to trust that God is generous, And that when it's needed, there will be enough. Maybe even more than enough. He is going to entrust himself to the Father. He is not going to live in fear. He is going to live in hope that the Father is capable to restore everything that's broken. To to renew everything that's lost. To heal all of our wounds. And not only does he, not only, but you see, not only does he trust the father, but he remains with absolute integrity, faithful to who he is in the name of love. Jesus is love incarnate. 
and he will not, even with Judas at the table, he will not do anything but love the person in front of him. (laughs) And that is what he's going to continue to tell the disciples in, in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. You say, well, that's not new. The Bible's talked about loving each other before. You're right. But when Jesus says that, when he says it's new, what he means is this. What I mean is just as I have loved you, you should love each other. There's lots of definitions floating around about what love really is. Here at Crossview, the only way we understand love is what we see and experience and learn from Jesus. And it is a radically new kind of love, a kind the world has never seen. Jesus says to his disciples, to you and me, well, if you're going to live this out, you've got to follow my example. You've got to serve. You've got to love as I have loved you. And then he says this, you know, we're talking about unity. And what does it mean to be a community that the rest of the world has never experienced before? Look at what he says in verse 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. I mean, that's what the church is meant. We we have all these ideas about what the church should be doing right now. You know what the church should be doing right now? We should be loving each other and proclaiming the good news that all are welcomed into the kingdom. That's why, we're, that's, why we're, that's why we're taking unity so seriously months ahead of 2024. Because if we don't love each other, we are failing Jesus. We are not being the church that the world needs to see. Something radically different than other. One author commenting on these verses says, In this moment... Jesus' hands are still wet from washing the disciples' feet. His hands are dripping with the kind of love that sets aside power in order to humbly serve both friend and enemy alike. And maybe, just maybe, the sound of Judas descending the stairs could still be heard as Jesus spoke these words. And and in just a few hours, Jesus' hands will once again be dripping with love, though this time the drops will be composed of blood and not water. His hands will be outstretched and pierced on a cross, and there the full extent of his love will be evident for all to see. In other words, Jesus declares himself to be the new standard of love precisely when his love is being most sorely tested and tried. That's the pattern, and that's the example. You and I get afraid that God won't act, so we have to act, (laughs) and we break bad. And we think we know what needs to be done. But our ultimate security is in the God of love who is loving us to the uttermost. And the best path forward is to follow his example. And when we're afraid, when, when, when our soul is troubled, we put our trust in God. And when you do that, you break good. When you're afraid, under pressure, feeling pain or dis- disappointed, when you can learn what it means both simply but then more profoundly and deeply what it means to entrust yourself to God, you will break good. You will stop trusting your own ability to control, manipulate, scheme, fight, and have it your way. And you will trust, as Jesus did, that the Father is good and he's generous. And you will know, as Jesus knew, that that 
that the victory of love will overwhelm evil. That life will swallow up death in the resurrection. <laughs> I mean, that's what it looks like to trust the Father. Jesus is willing to not be in control. Judas, go do what you need to do. I'm not going to use you, right? Because I know what love will do. <laughs> and yes, I know on Good Friday, people said Jesus failed. I mean, look, he's another failed Messiah. He's dead on a cross. And it just proves you can't live by trust. And you can't live by love. That's for suckers and losers. That's what people said on Good Friday, on Holy Saturday. But you know what? I think we heard something different on Easter Sunday. We heard Jesus Christ is risen. <laughs> Hallelujah. You can clap for that. Jesus trusted the Father all the way into death, and the Father raised him and vindicated him. In other words, even if you look like a loser, you feel like a loser, you can trust God after all, because he will bring you through, and you can break good. The cross is not just something Jesus does for us. It is also the way that we are to follow. We learn through the love of Christ that we can trust God. Jesus wanted the disciples to break good. He wants us to break good. I've mentioned my concerns about 2024 and the temptations that we'll face to be divisive. And I want to say today that you and I can start to prepare ourselves to be the kind of person who can handle it, whatever it is. We can prepare ourselves to break good because we will feel pressure and disappointment and fear in 2024. But part of that is going to involve reframing our own anxieties about what we can't control. Jesus was preparing the disciples by targeting this sort of panic that would have come if the disciples had faced the darkness ahead without knowing it was coming. Jesus said, it's coming, so don't panic. And he told them just enough about their futures to keep them from trying to find false solutions to the crises to come. He kept pointing them to the pattern of love. We don't know what's waiting for us in the next year with the presidential election or a billion other things, but we can become the kind of person who breaks good. And you can be self-aware enough to know what's most likely going to tempt you in an election year to be divisive or to be cruel or to be apathetic or to panic and be anxious or to be quarrelsome and argumentative. You can know this and you can begin to meet with Jesus now so that when the pressure comes, you break good, you don't break bad. And then think about what happens when we gather in the name of Jesus. A bunch of people breaking, but breaking good and worshiping our King. So I want to invite you to let Jesus do what he needs to do so you can be who you need to be. Let Jesus do what he needs to do so you can be who you need to be. Make room for this. And you may be wondering, well, can Jesus do this? You don't know everything about my life, Jeff. You don't know how messed up or broken. You don't know how good I am at fighting and arguing. Are you sure? Yes, Jesus can do it. He can wash you. Even as you eat this bread and drink from this cup in just a minute, you're being washed clean. And I want, I want to, I'm going to leave you with this and then I'll pray. I read this this week as well. 
He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped around himself a towel. He who pours the water into the rivers and the oceans tipped water into a basin. And he before whom every knee bends in heaven and on earth and under the earth knelt to wash the feet of his disciples. He's kneeling to wash our feet right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask um, that you would drive deep into our heart an assurance of our forgiveness, um, a celebration of our cleanliness before you, with you, in you, and a deep and steadfast trust. There's so much we can't control. It doesn't mean we don't have a part to play. I am convinced that whatever part to play we have, it's going to look like what you model for us, Jesus. But, but help us to lay down our need to scheme and manipulate and use people and have to have it our way. Help us to find this place of peace and purpose in your kingdom family. In your name we pray. Amen.